So we focused on the term no grain and looking at um, who, I guess, across different ages, um, sexes, countries is choosing that and then their sort of underlying correlations for maybe why they're choosing that. So we looked at features of their own diet, um, their dog's diet, their dog's exercise regimen, things like that, to see uh, correlations between just different aspects and why they're choosing no grain. A whole new era of communication in the pet food industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global pet food industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. ProAmpac is changing the future of sustainable pet food packaging. Learn more at pets.proampac.com. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition. Make one call, find it all. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition, your partner for pet ingredients and services. Welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting edge insights and all that's working in the pet food industry. Tired of one size fits all solutions that don't quite fit? At Wilbur Ellis, we're bringing custom back to the customer. We know that for your pet food and treats to shine on the shelf, you need to start with the best. After all, even the best recipe is only as good as its ingredients. From nutrition to preservation to blending and bottling, make one call to Wilbur Ellis Nutrition to find it all. We don't sell to you, we work with you. A true partnership to meet your needs. Follow Wilbur Ellis Nutrition on LinkedIn to learn how partnering with a purpose could double the power of your team. Hi everyone and welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast, where we seek to discuss current research and how we may apply to innovation in the pet food industry. I'm your host, Julia Pezzali, and today I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Sydney Benton on the topic of consumer behavior, and in this case, the consumer is our pet owners. Welcome, Sydney. Hi, Julia. Thanks for having me. No problem. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm good as well. Um, before we start talking about consumer behavior and the work you did in your master's and doing your PhD, do you mind telling your audience your background, where you're from, and where are you at in your career? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I grew up in Pickering, Ontario, just outside of Toronto. Um, and I did my undergraduate degree at the University of Toronto um, in ecology and evolutionary biology. So a bit of a different start, I think, than most uh, students in the field. Um, originally, I did want to go to vet school, but I kind of changed my mind as I got to Guelph. Um, I came to Guelph initially to do a master's uh, with Dr. Kate Shubler, where I looked at uh, grain-free diets in dogs. Um, as well as consumer behavior towards uh, grain-free diets that we'll be talking about today. Um, after that, I decided to stay for a PhD also with Dr. Shoveler. Um, so I'm about two years into that now and looking at different protein sources in dog foods. So I started with pulse ingredients, um, so following along the grain-free uh, trail there, and uh, now focused on high-protein diet, so more of a ketogenic diet for dogs, And then I'll also be looking at um, a uh, cystectomized rooster assay as well, looking at those pulse, pulse ingredients again. Great. It seems like you are in the grain-free world and trying to understand the use of those ingredients in dog diets and how they affect their yeah. metabolism and everything. Yeah, definitely. 
Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about your consumer uh, insight or behavior research. So that you did in your master's, right? And okay. you mind explaining us maybe first what was the major goal of the survey? And then we can then try to understand how can we do a survey to understand better consumer behavior and the importance of selecting the right tools and developing the right questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so our goal with the survey was really to get more of a like comparative look across um, certain parts of the globe, because we found that in um, previous surveys, a lot of that was lacking. It was focused in one certain area of the world or just one country or one like university town even. So they're very focused on just certain areas and that's all they look at. Um, So we wanted a more global perspective. Um, It's not entirely global, but we did look at um, North America and Europe, parts of Europe. So that was our goal was really to compare a wider range of uh, pet food owners and their consumer behavior. And were you targeting a specific uh, minor topic within your survey? What kind of consumer or maybe you know, what kind of topic were you targeting? Yeah, so we were specifically looking at grain-free diets, like how uh, owners decide if they're going to purchase a grain-free diet or not and what underlies their reasoning for that. Um, But we were really careful in the survey not to ever actually mention the term grain-free because there, at the time and still maybe a little bit today, there was a bit of a negative association with the term grain-free just due to the DCM um, FDA reports. So we only ever use the term no grain, um, but still, you know, you can see that on pet food packages, a lot of the claims they make are no this, no that. Um, so we focused on the term no grain and looking at um, who, I guess, across different ages, um, sexes, countries is choosing that and then their sort of underlying correlations for maybe why they're choosing that. So we looked at features of their own diet Um, their dog's diet, their dog's exercise regimen, things like that, to see uh, correlations between just different aspects and why they're choosing no grain. Yeah, no, that's great. And oh, you mentioned that you are using the term no grain and not grain free, maybe to not, you know, be biased or lead the consumer to a specific answer. So do you mind telling us how is the right way to develop questions to a survey and how kind of complicated it is, right? It's not only... Yeah. Getting a question out of your mind and put it online is much more complicated when you're trying to develop a, a survey or questionnaire that is really trying to get their ideas without being biased or getting mm-hmm. you know, their personal way there. Yeah, exactly. We were lucky to work with um, Dr. Mike Von Massow at the University of Guelph, and he focuses on consumer behavior um, in the human food industry. So he had a lot of experience with how to ask the questions in the way that you want so that you're not getting people like feeling um, self-conscious when they're answering a question where they might lie and say something else to sort of make look better. Um, so we worked with him a lot and he really helped us um, narrow down like specific ways to ask the question so we can get the most out of our responses. So a lot of it was going um, very piece by piece and just asking really just one thing at a time and not any questions where the person might have to like write a big explanation or think about a lot of things. So we kind of did step-by-step questioning where if we, at the end, you know, we wanted to know like what in their own diet is influencing their uh, pet food purchasing habits, we'd ask that in maybe five or six questions. Whereas you, at first I thought, okay, we can just ask them that. We had just one question, just ask them. 
Um, but we did it stepwise so that they're, they're not thinking that we as the um, researchers want to hear a certain thing. They just answer honestly. So we had a lot of uh, multiple choice questions where they can choose any amount of responses that they want. Like it's not just one answer is correct kind of thing. Um, so we would ask them, start out by just what uh, dietary regimens do you follow in your own uh, day-to-day life? And we had probably for that one, like 20 different options where they can choose any kind of diet that they tend to follow. And we split it up into different sections so that that whole section would just be about them. And then they moved on to a new section, which would just be about their dog. Um, so that it was very separate and just, you know, basic, straightforward questions that they could answer really easily without having to think too much about it. And all that's great and also brings the importance of collaboration again, right? Partnering with the right people because we cannot know everything. So I'm sure you learn a lot from him how to develop those questions and how to think about uh, exactly developing those questions while you're developing surveys and to better understand the consumer behavior and choices without getting into our you know, personal feelings or the bias part of the survey. Yeah, absolutely. And Sydney, you mentioned as well that you conducted the survey in different countries, mm-hmm. uh, but you are based in Guelph, Ontario, yep. Canada, right? Yes. So how did you, um, you know, were able to distribute the surveys in different countries? Because as you said many times, when we are in university or academia, we end up sharing the surveys that we do on social media or in our own small area, not only geographically, but, you know, personal uh, connections because you put on social media, you're going to have that specific connection of people. So how were you able to uh, select an unbiased population and in different countries? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we used um, a company called Qualtrick, um, which I is a very a big name in the survey world, I believe. So a lot of different um, people use Qualtrics. Um, So they are responsible for all the recruitment, which takes it out of our hands so that it's not biased, as you said. So we at no point shared it on any social media platform. They in across the world, I believe they have um, different like cohorts of people who have previously completed surveys through them. So they will put out either by email or whatever the the person might prefer, um, but they just send it out to anyone who they think might be eligible. And then that person can log on to the survey. And then we have a section of sort of screener questions at the beginning that would say if they're eligible for our survey specifically or not. So for example, we didn't allow people who work in the pet food industry or veterinarians, um, people like that to participate in the survey. We just wanted the general population. So we had a you know, first question that would say, are you a veterinarian? Yes or no. And if they said yes, then they they would end the survey and they would say, thank you. That's it. If they said no, then they could go on to the next screener question. Um, So that was also very stepwise where we just kind of narrowed them down to make sure that they were just a a general consumer, not anyone who would have like specialized knowledge in the area. Um, And Qualtrics worked with us through that as well to really make sure we're getting the population that we want Um, And again, making it so that they don't sort of try to lie so that they can do the survey. Um, It's just a very straightforward question, like, are you a veterinarian? Um, And you just assume, hopefully, that nobody would lie to that and just answer honestly. 
Um, but yeah, they were responsible for all of our recruitment. Um, and they actually, I think it was less than 24 hours that we had over 3000 responses across Europe and North America. So they're really fast, um, really efficient. And as long as your survey, like you put in the time beforehand with, you know, everyone that you're working with to make sure that questions are all functional, um, cause it's all online, then all the data comes back really quickly and you have a lot to work with. Yeah, no, that's, oh, that's really great. And they probably have a huge database of people who are enrolled. If yeah. They can. yeah. Some people really like to do surveys. I'm not one of them, but there yeah. are some people who really like to do those. So I bet they, <laughs> their population is a little bit biased on the sense that they like to do surveys, but not yeah. on the topic. <laughs> yeah, it could be that. Yeah. But um, yeah, no, that's really good to explain to people how it, your survey in this case was on bios and how you're able to select all this population. There is, I think the challenge with using maybe those platforms when we are in academia is the price, right, is a little bit expensive. And when you distribute on social media platforms, we have the issue that they're they going to be biased. The population is not going to represent kind of the true population of pet owners. Yeah. Uh, but again, money sometimes is a barrier yeah. and a challenge when you're conducting research. So the I would say the challenge with using those platforms is um, how expensive they might be, correct? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I know it was, they give you a quote based on how many um, responses that you want um, and across sort of which areas that you're looking for. Um, but it really is just the number of people that you're looking for that drive the price. And we wanted a large um, sample size, of course, because the surveys, you know, it took less than 15 minutes to complete. So it's fairly easy to get a lot of people to do it. Um, so yeah, it was the sample size that really drove the cost. But yeah, Qualtrics does have, I believe, a free platform as well, like you said, where you can just share it online yourself too. Okay, that's great as well. So now that we talk about the importance of selecting, um, or not selecting, but having a good sample size and how that's going to impact you know, the results and how to develop non-bios questions, uh, do you mind sharing with us the major results of your first survey uh, pertaining to how consumers, they choose uh, grain-free or no-grain diets uh, back when you developed the survey, which was in 2020, right? 2020, yeah. Uh, I'm right. <laughs> yeah. <through. laughs> it was right during COVID, so everyone was on home at line any, online anyway. So That's I why I got the response, you know, less yeah. than 24 hours, they needed exactly. something to <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the first one uh, was our grains on the brain survey. So we, again, we were looking at who's more likely to choose no grain versus who's less likely to choose no grain. Um, so the people that were more likely to choose no grain in general, uh, we found a few trends, but one of them that stood out was that they were more likely to believe that their dog has an allergy. Um, so those people were more likely to select no grain. They were more likely to follow uh, more than five of their own dietary routines. So we see influence in their own uh, behavior sort of coming into their dog's eating regimen. Um, They're also more likely to try to not include grains in their own diet. So that makes sense considering they're looking for no grains in their dog's diet as well. And then they were more likely to look for certain claims um, that we had asked about, such as like no fillers and no byproducts. So perhaps those people who are looking for no grain believe that grains are fillers in their dog's food. And that's why they're also looking for terms like no fillers. Um, and then on the opposite side, we had um, people who are less likely to select no grain. Um, they tended to be male in general. Um, and then people from France. So we looked at um, 
France, Germany, the United Kingdom, Canada, and the United States. So specifically, France was less likely to uh, look for no grain. Um, And then they were also, um, they tended to rank the importance of ingredients in their dog, like in their pet food uh, in the lower quartiles. So didn't rank, you know, just ingredients being as something really important when they're looking for pet food. People Um, in France? Sorry, in general. Just in general, okay. Yeah, these are all traits of people who were less likely to look for no grain. Okay. Um, And then one last one was that they were less likely to rotate their dog's diet. So, like, change up the food that their dog is eating. Yeah, no, I think it's very very interesting. And we see this with humanization of pets that the consumers sometimes, they want to see the same bowl that they are eating translating to their pet's diet. So... A lot of those, as you said, that you found in your research is the humanization of pets and trying to, again, translate what they are eating to their pets. Well. Yeah. And I think the allergy one was pretty interesting that maybe people are using, like trying to, I guess, diagnose their own allergy, like their own pet's allergies and sort of treat it through diet, um, whether that's with a veterinarian or not. We weren't entirely um, sure. We did ask a question about if their dog has been diagnosed with an allergy through their veterinarian, and those people tended to be um, less likely to select no grain. So it seemed like people who were not seeking the advice of their veterinarian were going for no grain if they believe their dog has an allergy. Um, So maybe using it as a therapeutic diet. Um, So interesting to see that because we know that grains are not really a high allergen for dogs it's typically animal proteins not uh, grains so yeah i think it comes with the lack of awareness and i think technology sometimes doesn't help us so google is there yeah with a yeah. lot of you know misinformed posts and blog posts where people seek for they are normal they seek for information i think both of us and everyone sometimes if you don't know any something we google it so they do the same but then sometimes they are they face with you know, not in, not correct information, which for sure have, has an impact on their decision making. And in this case, with pet food and, and the allergen and the allergy thing, as I said, is, is a big thing. I was talking with some students this week and they go, oh, my, I think my dog has an allergy. I'm going to feed a grain-free diet. I was like, wait, but what is the major protein source of your food? So that yeah. is always yeah. that misunderstanding that we need to make sure we are translating the correct message to the audience okay. because... In academia, we know, and many veterinarians, they also know that is not. But if they wanted to self-diagnose their dogs, or you know, or go to Google, that's not the information they usually find. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the I remember your survey was very complete and very good, and then we got a second paper out of it, right? Uh, more looking to uh, exercise and dogs and okay. how do how I think both the honor exercise routine affects a dog or. The opposite, do you mind telling us a little bit about that secondary goal and the results you got from that? Yeah, so we um, initially had asked a lot of questions in the survey about both the owner's exercise routine as well as their dog's exercise routine. Um, but relating to looking at like no grain, uh, grain free, it didn't really fit at the time that we were, that I was analyzing the data. Um, so I decided to sort of split them up and look at a whole second um, sort of topic like exercise and body weight in dogs because we did also ask about their the dog's body weight and the owner's perception of their dog's body weight so for us the survey was very um, 
it was always focused on the owner's perception of everything, not necessarily if that's right or wrong. So we never asked for them to provide like a photo of their dog or tell us exactly what dog food they're feeding. It was all related to what they think and, and their perceptions. So that was another way um, that Dr. Bon Masso suggested that we sort of don't introduce bias. If we're not going to like correct them or check that they're right, then they're just more likely to just share what they what they look for and what they do. Um, so for the exercise um, paper, that one, again, it was all just their perception of their dog's body weight. So we found a lot of interesting sort of correlations between exercise. So overall, sort of the biggest message, I guess, that we saw was that people who are more likely to exercise themselves more are also more likely to exercise their dogs more. And then in turn, they're less likely to believe that their dog is overweight. So they believe their dog has an ideal body condition. Um, so that makes sense. Um, in that one, so similar to how France was often different in our grain survey, um, the Germans were different in this case. So they were more likely to exercise their dog more. They were more likely to report their dog as an ideal body weight. They were more likely to rank the importance of exercise in their dog's life as extremely important. So they seem to be very um, exercise focused and they had usually across the board higher exercise um, with their dogs in general. So we saw that trend um, across country. So that was pretty cool. Um, and then we saw that we were looking at if your dog has been told that they're, or, or sorry, if you've been told by your veterinarian that your dog is overweight. Um, so we looked at trends related to that. Um, so if you were told that your dog was overweight, the, those people were more likely to be uh, restricting their dog's food to control weight. They were more likely to select a weight control diet for their dog. Um, and they were more likely to give their dogs um, more other foods than just their diet on a daily basis. So some different kind of things there. Um, it's a little bit hard to interpret what way that one is going because they're more likely to select a weight control diet, but then their dog is overweight. So is the weight control diet working or is that the reason that they selected it? It gets a little bit difficult to, to tell when you're just doing correlations like this, but still interesting to see. Yeah, no, at least it's not like a trend or uh, right. a correlation there. For sure, there's more to investigate. Right. And I think that I don't know much Europe. I have a, anyways, a family history there, but I don't know. But probably the lifestyle is there in different countries for sure. So that's probably playing a role on their ex exercise routine. One thing I was, I was interested is, I don't remember if in the survey was asked about dog breeds or um, because some breeds, they require more exercise. So the ad is playing a role on impacting the owner's exercise routine or is the owner's exercise routine that is impacting you know which one came first the egg or the yeah yeah, yeah. which one do you think is influencing more one another or think is a both way that both are impacting this exercise? yeah yeah so we did ask about the dog's um body size so from like extra small to extra large we had that as a question in terms of breed, we just asked if it was a purebred dog or a mixed breed dog. We didn't go into all the different breeds, um, but we typically didn't see that um, question, like that factor playing a role in any of the models we looked at in terms of exercise. So I would have thought that too, like certain breeds need more exercise. So maybe, you know, people in Germany just maybe own more of those breeds, um, but we didn't look at 
exactly specific breeds, but even size, they tend to be, you know, larger dogs that require more exercise, but we didn't really see um, trends there. Yeah, it will be, be, will be interesting to, to see those questions here in the U.S. with the AKC dog breed groups. They divide the dog breeds in seven different groups and some require more exercise so to see if the people who buy from pure uh, purebred dogs from that specific yeah. group, you know, they, and it's probably, it's probably affecting there because they need more yeah. exercise or they're destroying, going to destroy your house. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to be good for sure. Yeah. So I guess from conducting all those surveys, what did you like the most about consumer behavior research and what excited you more about getting those data and, you know? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I had never done anything like this before, and I, I truly didn't think that I ever would uh, when I came into this field, but in a, it ended up being really cool. I really enjoyed it. Um, I really like that. I mean, you can ask any question that you want, and you kind of think, well, at least I thought in my head, like, oh, probably most people will say this, or like most people will say that. And then when you get the data back, like I said, we had over 3,000 uh, respondents and some things were, I was surprised by, like I just, they tended to go one way where I thought they would go the other. So I think just coming back, like seeing the raw data at the beginning, it was just the initial like surprise factor that I was not expecting to see certain things. And you just see it all so quickly, like it's all there right away um, and you can analyze it a billion different ways and look for all kinds of different trends. But yeah, my favorite part, I think, was just the very beginning when I first saw all those responses coming back. And I was like, what? Like, why are they all <laughs> selecting this? I thought for sure they'd be leaning that way, you know, whatever it might be. So, yeah. Yeah, I know that's cool to see that you got the same, you know, reaction because you done other kind of tries animal work as well that we got the data. It's like, wait, what's happening here? Yeah. I thought it was something different. So yeah. I think the fact that you got the data so quick and that you didn't have to do any lab work as well, <laughs> but that, you know, that variable there probably, you know, help yeah. as well. Too. Yeah, so with like, an animal trial, like you run the whole trial and then a year later, you're shocked. But with the survey, yeah. the next day I was shocked. <laughs> You don't have time to prepare yourself, you know. To, yeah. <laughs> no, that's great. Um, and also, Sydney, just want to change topics a little bit, uh, just because I really like her other piece of her master's research too. Uh, you did animal work as well with green free diet, that's as you right. said in your introduction, and you're looking at Matthew Donner's right and how yeah. their supplementation affect. Um, do you also mind a little sharing for like the major results and? In each situation, maybe method donors, they may be beneficial in a pet food formulation. Yeah. Yeah. So in that case, we looked at, um, we used beagle dogs, just adult uh, beagles, male and female. Um, and we looked at feeding just a commercially available grain-free diet and then supplementing it with either methionine, taurine, or creatine, carnitine, and choline. So those are our methyl donors and receivers. Um, and we did it just for seven days just to see the initial um, meal response to being supplemented those for the methionine, taurine, creatine, carnitine, and choline. And they were provided on the top dressed on the diet, so readily available uh, for the animal. And then we did a meal response looking at how the, the different plasma amino acids change after a meal once they've consumed it. So we found, as you would expect, that dogs supplemented with methionine had higher um, plasma and whole blood methionine concentrations, um, similar to taurine. Um, but interestingly, in our 
plasma taurine, we actually saw that dogs supplemented with either methionine or creatine, carnitine, and choline were not actually different from the dogs who were supplemented directly with taurine. So that was sort of um, an interesting finding, but then again, highlights, like you said, the importance of also supplementing other nutrients involved in these um, pathways in the dog. So the creatine, carnitine, and choline are all involved um, in methylation and taurine synthesis in some way or another. Um, So seeing that those actually didn't differ from the dog supplemented with taurine was a really interesting finding from that study. I know, yeah, that's really interesting. And maybe it's going to be beneficial for those diets that are more limiting in protein or limiting super amino acids that you may provide those sources from those. Probably you need some more research on that, but maybe you can hypothesize coming. If you supply those metal donors, you're going to maybe increase synthesis of taurine without providing extra methionine, which will have consequences in the long term as you, there is some research showing that as well. Yeah. And we were looking like our control diet was commercially available. So it already exceeded all of AFCO's um, recommendations. So even in that case, we saw differences. So it would be really interesting to see, like you said, a diet that is more limiting in maybe protein or is just a lot closer to the AFCO um, cutoffs rather than being above like this one was or, you know, a more limited diet that isn't maybe supplementing choline and other things. It's pretty common, but just looking at more like a bare bones kind of diet and then seeing what those methyl methyl donors can do in that scenario, I think would be interesting as well. Yeah, but it's great that you saw differences, even though they were high in protein. And again, it's a commercial diet, which it's sometimes is there is some um, not ideal sometimes for some situations, but in this case, it's really good because you are mimicking what we see in the market and it's really applicable. So in this case, People can think about the supplementation of these methyl donors in this situation or even others as we'll be talking about this low protein or more limited amino acid diets, which we have in the market as well. And they have a purpose too. Yeah. Well, I think we, I asked a bunch of questions about your master's data. Do you have anything exciting to tell tell us about, you know, do you have any data from your PhD? What's that is done? I hope Kate doesn't get mad at me them asking this. <laughs> but do you have anything to share with us, like something, something exciting we're working on that, you know, is really making your days more happy in the middle of all the research that sometimes can be time-consuming <laughs> and stressful? Yeah. Um, one project, I think I can talk about it because one part is already published, so I think it's okay. But um, it was pretty cool. We looked at um, in four different pulse, inc- uh, pulse inclusion diets. So we had a control diet that just had corn, um, corn and chicken, like a typical grain inclusive diet, and then an increasing pulse inclusion. So 15, 30, and 45%. Um, and on those diets, I actually ran, I sent them to the University of Alberta at their metabolomics innovation center there. And we ran a full foodomic profile. Um, so that's the first time we've ever done that. And I don't think it's very common to do in pet food. But you get back over 200, in our case, 200 different metabolites that are found in the diet. So right now I'm working on um, a paper looking at correlating those different um, metabolites in the food to plasma amino acid concentrations uh, in the dog of of which they were fed those diets. Um, So again, we have a meal response there. And then looking at just seeing what um, metabolites in the food are influencing the 
plasma and whole blood amino acids in the dogs. So that's pretty cool. I'll be um, submitting that one for publication soon. Oh, that's awesome. I will keep looking on PubMed to see when this comes up. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to send me as soon as it's published. I'm excited to, to see this data. Yeah. yeah, for sure. It's time for our famous three. Oh, I think we we are almost done with our podcast episode. Um, before we end it, I always like to ask our guests some more personal questions. So are we ready for those, Sydney? I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> so the first one that I like to ask people and many people in those podcasts ask as well, uh, if there is any trait of successful people in your life that you see they have in common and what is it and do you try to achieve the same or how, you know, how do you see successful people in your life and what are the traits that they have? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think being in this field um, halfway through my PhD, I think I've learned really that self-motivation is a really important trait to have and you can get different things out of a PhD and it depends really on how self-motivated you are to learn or to, to go further in whatever direction you want to go. Um, but I think self-motivation is a really big, um, tr I guess, trait that I see a lot of people in the field who are, you know, really self-motivated do a lot in their PhDs, get a lot out of it. Um, and so I want to be like that. Um, and I'm trying to do that in my PhD now as well. Um, there's a lot of different things that I want to learn um, and that I want to get out of a PhD. And four years is a long time. So I want to really pack in as much as I can and really learn as much as I can during this time. because I think it's, you don't, you won't really get this time again uh, in your career. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think you said a word that is really important. You want to learn as much as you can. And I think that's what drive most people to be self-motivated and do things beyond what they're expected. And you have done that for those who don't know, I, I did my PhD uh, with Sydney in Guelph. So I know her, she's a great friend of mine and she's a great researcher and She's for sure self-motivated and is getting a lot of her PhD. So you are, you are applying that in your life, Sydney, for sure. I'm not sure that. <laughs> I'm just trying to follow in your footsteps. Oh, no, don't do that. Isn't yeah, no. <laughs> I'm just kidding. There's big shoes to fill at Guelph now that you're gone. So No, no. <laughs> I think the other question I want to ask you is because I think I've seen that you really enjoy research and you're really good at it. So what is your favorite thing about being a scientist or doing research? For you? Yeah, for me, um, I really realized it in my master's um, that any project that you have or that you're working on is really yours from start to finish. Like I, I really, I feel a lot of a pride in what I do. Like I'm really happy that I get to do it. And especially in the companion animal field, being able to work with animals every day is, I think it's really lucky that we get to do that. Um, and it's something I've always been passionate about and not a lot of people get to do that. So I'm really grateful to be here. Um, and just, but yeah, like I said, from the planning to publishing a paper, it really, if it's your project, you have ownership over all of it. Um, so yeah, I try to take a lot of pride in that. And from beginning to end, really, you know, I just, yeah, I, I like that it's mine and I, you know, I get to do every aspect of it, the hard parts, the easy parts, the fun parts. Um, the tiring parts, all of it, um, it really is yours. And it's something at the end to be really proud of. So I really like that. Yeah, I guess it's like nursing a baby and seed growing. And not that I have one, but 
<laughs> I think it's like having a project from, as I said, planning and see it coming through and all the challenges that come with, but when you publish and you see the final results, you go, I worked so hard for this and there it is. I always say when I put something, oh, my baby's born because <laughs> it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort. And there are some projects that are easier than others, but research is never easy. And yeah. you, know, you should be proud of yours. And yeah, so I agree with you. Well, thank you very much, Sydney, for joining us today. I'm sure our audience uh, really liked to hear insights about consumer behavior and hear a little bit more about your uh, dog work, the Matthew Donner's one. I'm sure we, we can, I'm going to invite you for more podcasts to talk more about your PhD research once you have that published. Uh, we'd like to hear more about the photomics and all the correlations with the plasma metabolites and in this case, amino acids. So yeah, thank you very much. And for those who don't know Sydney, you should... Uh, follow her on Google Scholar, PubMed, everywhere. And all the publication that we are talking about is available online. And one thing that I like and I dislike about Sydney is that she likes to put fun titles on her research. I think they're cool, but it's like, I don't like this. And she always like it, but they are cool. But I always bother her that she put she yeah. puts fun names, uh, fun titles in her research. But I was You had to grab their attention somehow. <laughs> Yeah, no, you're totally right. I'm just, I'm not that creative enough to give those titles, but... You had the whisker one with cats. Yeah, but that was a blog post. I need yeah. to, you know, <laughs> to be more... Um, yeah, maybe I need to improve my English vocabulary, you know, to come up with some <laughs> fun titles and, you know, my academic... My English is fine to write a paper, but I need to maybe watch more TV shows or, you know, get more familiar with this fun vocabulary that you guys use <laughs> <laughs> well thank you Sydney and thank you everyone for joining us today and see you next time thanks for having me